morning, Mosaic Church. Uh, if we've never met, my name is Brady. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here, and I like to describe myself as an imperfect follower of Jesus. Uh, and I just wanted to just warn you, I've been sick for the past four days. So first row, uh, enjoy next week. It's going to be fantastic. Um, but the reason I want to say that is because uh, I realized that I actually got paler um, this week, which I didn't think was possible. I didn't know that there was like a, a, you know, a lesser shade of translucent, but there is. And I just didn't want you to think that I was like shining like the glory of Moses. Like, like when he came down from the mountain, he was shining with the glory of God. That's not what's going on. It's just, it's just sick. And I never know, he came out here a couple of weeks ago when, when he was sick and he was all brave. And, you know, it was amazing. He said, you know what? I sound much worse than I feel. And I was like, oh, that's, that's amazing. That's so brave. I don't. I want you to have lots of sympathy for me. If I, if I like lean on this, be like, oh, you poor thing. And just pray for me. It's, it's rough. Um, honestly, though, you know, I you know, had the flu all, all week, uh, which I think the average woman would just call a cold. And the average mom would just say, I've got the sniffles. And she wouldn't miss a beat, right? She'd just still be doing everything. Uh, so I had the, the, the wonderful man cold. And, and, and I'm here, I, bravely. Uh, you know, I've made it here, uh, barely. Uh, and so you're welcome. And uh, the real guy will be back next week. Oh, wow. Uh, this morning, man, we are talking uh, about uh, the book of Hebrews. And there's a concept that I think is really um, confusing because of the way that our culture, our world looks at it. And it's the idea of greatness. Uh, I don't know if you, you've, you've checked out this Hebrew slide, which is amazing. Our design team is incredible. But you look at this little arrow. I don't know if you've known this. This is the greater than sign. Do you remember learning greater than? I remember learning greater than, and I don't remember what greater it was, but I remember uh, my teacher drew an alligator with a mouth and said the alligator always eats the bigger number. So that's how you know the greater is over this side and the lesser is over on this side. That's just how it works. Just, just a reminder. So if you didn't know, the alligator eats the bigger number. That's, that's how I know. It's how I still remember. But the idea throughout the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is the idea of greatness itself. But in our world, in our culture, we think about it very differently. So I want us to just kind of take a, a tour of kind of what our culture might talk about when we say greatness. And so I made a slide. Uh, we've got some images of some people uh, that I, might portray what we would think of as greatness in our world. And, and you look at these people. Uh, in fact, a few of them have been called the goat, uh, which isn't an insult. Uh, it's the greatest of all time. G-O-A-T, greatest of all time. Michael Jordan, uh, the, the true goat. Uh, I was a huge fan of Michael Jordan growing up. Uh, you got Meryl Streep. You got Tom Brady, who was named after me. Uh, you know, three of these athletes, right? And you th think about pure athleticism. And you think that's greatness. Or you look at talent. And you think that's greatness. You look at wealth. You look at social influence or political power. And that's what is greatness in our world in our culture, in our society. These are the people that typify what we think of when we say great, or we think of greatness, or when we hold up someone as great, someone who has achieved something great. And it's this idea that these are the people that are there. And so if we want to achieve greatness, we need to climb that ladder. We need to work super hard and get up there we need to, you know, build our brand. We need to, you know, uh, make sure we've got the perfect social media aesthetic that people will like, garner followers so that we can become great. Wealth, 
fame, talent, right? These are the things that we look at so often. And I just did a Google search for, for quotes on greatness so I could see what our, you know, in our world, people are talking about with greatness. So I'm just going to read some of these to you. Um, uh, Nietzsche says this, the concept of greatness entails being noble, wanting to be by oneself, being able to be different, standing alone, and having to live independently. That's greatness. Jonathan Swift said, I never knew a man come to greatness or eminence who lay abed late in the morning. We're going to take this out for the 1117. Uh, I just, yeah, I don't want to say, oh, good luck with the mediocrity for the rest of your life. Um, Blaise Pascal says, man's greatness lies in his power of thought, brilliance, wisdom. Edgar Allan Poe says to vilify a great man is the readiest way in which a little man can himself attain greatness, which I think our culture has grabbed hold of, Right? You want to vilify those who are great and then you will become or be thought of as great. And then uh, Wilma Rudolph said this, never underestimate the power of dreams and the influence of the human spirit. We're all the same in this notion. The potential for greatness lies within each of us. Is this not hitting the nail on the head of what our culture says is greatness. It's in each of us. We all have greatness inside of us. Uh, I was uh, watching uh, Frozen 2 the other day uh, because we had a child with us. Um, uh, Danny Connors, pastor of Disney Campus, his daughter loves Frozen. And so she wanted to watch Frozen 2. So we were watching Frozen 2. Um, and that is the only reason I was watching it. Um, and the reason that I finished it after she left was because I just needed to know what happened. But the, the point is, is you look at this movie, uh, and I actually watched the, the making of this movie, and it's really interesting. It is incredibly interesting. You've got this, uh, this, this girl, Elsa, who is searching for something, right? There's this thing that she's longing for, yearning for, like these questions that she has. There's this emptiness inside. So she's on this journey searching for this person, for this voice, for this one who can explain what it's all about, who can make her feel the things that she needs to feel this completeness. And at the end of the movie, she gets to this place and the voice says, you are the one you've been waiting for all your life. You haven't been searching for someone else, someone greater, someone more powerful, someone more wise. You've just been searching for you. It reminds me of Matthew McConaughey, who was giving a, he was giving a graduation speech. And he said, you know, someone asked me who my hero was. And I told him, me, 10 years from now. I am my own hero 10 years from now. And I, and, and I tell you what, this is where our society is. This is where our culture is. This is what we think greatness is. This is what we're all looking for. This is what we're all moving towards, what we're trying to achieve, what we are aspiring to, right? I was the same. And oftentimes still the same. And I wanna, I wanna show you, I, I, I brought um, some uh, pictures from my scrapbook. Uh, my mom actually took some pictures of pictures. That's why the quality is so incredible. Uh, and she, she sent these to me. And for me, like, this was my story. I wanted to be great. And so you can see it. Like, I, I dressed in the ways that I thought was greatness. Over here, this is good. Okay, this is me. I've got a raincoat on. I've got a shield. And I've got a sword. But the sword's in a sheath. I don't know why I thought that was better. And I'm wearing goggles. That was, that was what superhero was to me. That's what greatness was to me. And then over here, I'm Superman. Uh, with flip-flops on a mechanical bull. I don't, 
I don't know who let me go out of the house like that, but they did. And then over here in the middle, this is great. So I'm, I'm wearing my mom's hairnet because that's what I did when I wanted to be Spider-Man. But here I'm like a combination of Spider-Man and Superman with cowboy boots, which by the way, I'm shocked at how many, how many different pictures from my childhood I had cowboy boots and a cowboy hat on. I didn't know that was a, a theme, right? I didn't know that I was, you know, want to be a cowboy. I didn't know, but I did, apparently. And then this one, this is great because I'm, I'm here, I'm a cowboy, I've made a gun out of uh, some sort of Lego material. And my brother, I love the look he's given me. He's looking at this guy and he's thinking, I will surpass you in five years. I will. Like, he's three years younger than me, and he's like, yeah, by the time I reach eighth grade, I, I will beat you up. And, and it happened. He, he really is. He did. Uh, this is a good one, because this is me with basically everything that I had. I've got a gun with a sword sheath on the gun, so it looks more like a laser gun. I've got a sword, actually, on my back in a sheath right there. I've got some sort of rope with with some sort of thing that I thought might be able to catch it, and I could climb things with it. I don't know. And, and I'm wearing... I'm, look at these boots. I'm wearing these uh, snow boots. And it's obviously hot enough for me to not be wearing a shirt. Apologize for the nakedness. Um, and and, I, and I, not only did I put this on, but I thought, this is a good thing for picture day. Somebody take a picture of me. This is, that's how I felt about myself right there. It's pretty great. And then over here, you know, the, the, the normal, natural, you know, mode of greatness, athleticism, and you, you look at that kid and you think, okay, you're not going to be good at football. Like you can just tell by my stance, it's never going to happen, right? Never going to happen. And it didn't. I, I cut out my friend out of there because he actually looked far more manly than I did. And I didn't want to embarrass myself. And I was thinking, as I was looking at all these pictures, I was thinking like, wow, it makes sense that at 45, this guy will have a midlife crisis and get a man bun. Like, it's like, that's where he's headed. This is the destiny of this person, Right? But if we think about this, greatness, glory, majesty, what is it? How do we define it? What are we looking for? And I tell you what, as I watched Frozen 2 and I heard her find out that she's the one she's been waiting for, I was thinking to myself, what in the world? If when I die, someone comes to me and says, you've the, you're the one you've been waiting for your whole life, I'm gonna be so angry. Because I know that I need something better. As I was laying in bed, you know, in a pool of sweat and mucus coming out my pores and trying to stand up out of bed, I'm already out of breath. Like there's no greatness, right? When you're sick, that you realize you are not great. You need help. You need something outside of yourself because you're weak. If there's this magical greatness inside of me and that's the thing that I've been waiting to unlock and that will give me all that I want, I'm gonna be incredibly disappointed one day. Because if I've learned anything from that kid who used to dress up as superheroes and odd things, it's that I am not enough. I am not the essence of greatness. And no matter how hard I work, no matter how many ladders I climb, no matter how many accolades I get and degrees, it doesn't matter. I need something greater, something better, someone greater. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. Why don't you grab your Bibles and open up to the book of Hebrews. We're gonna be in chapter two. And just a little bit of context 
Renaud's been teaching us about what's been going on. And this is a letter that was written to a group of people who were under severe persecution. And they were under persecution to, 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 to the degree that they were in danger of drifting away from the faith. And he's trying to plead with them and implore them, don't neglect Jesus. Now, we start out Hebrews chapter two, verse five. And, and if you've never gotten to hear me teach before, I like to show my notes. So if you're studying the Bible, you can kind of have some kind of example of what you might do. No, you don't have to do this, but it's okay. You can write in your Bible. Uh, we have these little journals, these Hebrews journals. We've got a journal for every book of the Bible and it's got the scripture on one side and the next side, it's just got a, a page for you to write notes, these little dotted lines. And so this is kind of how I study as I'm going through. But I wanna I'll kind of take you through what's going on here. But it begins and it says for. And for is one of those words that we talk about. Renault mentioned therefore. And you want to ask, what's it there for? Right? And, and it's one of those reminders that this is connected to something else. Oftentimes, we can grab scripture, we can just pull it out, and, and we can take it out of context. And it's so important to go back to context because as a passage of scripture is sitting in its context, it actually makes more sense. And it's so much more beautiful. It's incredible. So let's go back. So we'll go back to the beginning of chapter two, verse one. It says, therefore, which means we need to go back. So what is the context that's going on? Therefore, and in chapter one, since Jesus is God's son, since Jesus is the creator and heir of all things, since Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's nature, since he is the sustainer of all things. And you see this incredible elevation of Jesus's nature, his character and his status. Jesus is the one who spoke creation into being. And then you get these seven different Old Testament quotes and it's just in Incredible, it's brilliant what the writer of Hebrews is doing. He takes these seven Old Testament quotes and they're all about different people and he weaves them together. There are these three main uh, people, th groups of people or this one person, but three different um, aspects that he's weaving together into one. And you've got David's heir. You've got a couple quotes that are talking about David's heir. God made some promises to, I don't know if you remember, great King David uh, took care of Goliath, right? D David, God made some promises to him and said, your throne and the throne of your descendants will be forever. And he promised that he's going to have a, a descendant and God's going to be a father to him. He's going to be a son to God. And, and so there are these, these quotes about David's heir, but then there are these quotes about the Messiah. And the Messiah was this person who throughout the Old Testament, you didn't know who it was, but you, you began to get this picture of what the Messiah would be like and what the Messiah would do. But it begins in Genesis chapter three. Right After humans have rebelled against God, he promises that there will come one human who will deal with human evil. And, and it begins to take shape that this is the Messiah or the anointed one or the anointed king. And so he takes David's heir, the Messiah, and then these passages about God himself. And he says, it's all one. That David's heir is the Messiah and the Messiah is David's heir and they are God. This person is God in the flesh. And now we that know the New Testament and understand the story of Jesus, we think, yeah, that makes total sense. That's exactly who Jesus is. But for a lot of people, this was revolutionary that you would tie these three uh, people together into one. 
And it's brilliant the way that he does this. You can do it if you're looking through the Old Testament, but I love the way the New Testament spells it out for us. And so it's all about Jesus's elevated status. And so therefore, since Jesus is this, this, like we can't even describe how high and great and majestic and powerful since Jesus is, then we need to pay attention to Jesus's words because there's a danger that if we neglect Jesus, if we neglect his words, if we neglect the gospel, if we neglect so great a salvation, we will drift, we'll drift. So pay attention. So continually refocus on Jesus. And so we get in now to our passage of four, right? In light of the danger of drift, we need to pay attention to Jesus's words because they're actually greater than the words that were uh, given through angels, right? They're actually God's word being spoken out. That's who Jesus is. And he says this. So now he's going to get into more proof that, we sh- that should convince us to pay attention and not drift, to not neglect Jesus. But how he does it is brilliant. He says, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. And subject just means put in a submissive relationship, right? So he says, he didn't put the world to come underneath the authority of angels. I.e., we're going to find out it's instead to Jesus. It has been testified somewhere, which one of my favorite quotes in all of scripture, because this makes me know I don't always need to know the book and verse uh, when I'm quoting scripture. Like, it's okay. It's okay. You can be like, I don't remember where that is. You can just Google it. It will, it will, it will show you. But I love the writer Hebrews says, it says somewhere. It's like, I, I can't remember where, but I'll quote it exactly word for word. Uh, it has been testified somewhere. What is man? And this is just the generic word for human, Adam, right? What, what is human that you are mindful of him? You you think about this. You think about the God of the universe, creator and sustainer of the cosmos, right? No beginning, no end, outside of time, holding all things together. And you think in the scheme of the trillions of stars and all that's going on, that God would actually be mindful of a human, like care about a human, what a human cares about. And I think about, I, I, I care about the, the tiniest things. I mean, come on. And yet, that God would be mindful of, of me. I mean, that should just blow our minds right there. I mean, how often do you spend time just pondering an ant? Hmm. What are that ant's feeling right now? As it scurries in the line and is avoiding all the... Uh, magnifying glasses of the kids you want to burn it up like, I mean just like I mean I don't know I don't think about ants I don't think about these things that are that that I see as beneath me underneath me less than me and yet God considers and that's what the, the psalmist this is from Psalm 8 is just going what, what in the world that you would be mindful of humankind and then he says or the son of man and we're going to get into what this is it's in, it's, it's it's beautiful that you care for him. You made him a little, uh, you made him for a little while lower than the angels and have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet in a submissive relationship under his feet. Now this comes from Psalm 8. Psalm 8's in a really unique uh, place. Uh, And and what's going on in Psalm 8, it's in this section that's talking about how is God gonna deal with the problem of human evil and violence? I mean, if you look at our world, there's a lot of it going on, 
And throughout history, there's been a lot of human violence. And human violence hurts people. Hundreds of people, thousands of people, millions of people have been hurt by human violence. And he said, how is God going to deal with human violence? And it talks about in, in Psalm 2, which kind of sets the course for where the Psalms go, that God's going to deal with human evil and violence through the Messiah. But what the next few Psalms, Psalms 3 through 14, begin to do is paint this picture of these people who are lower, who are oppressed, who are of low status, who are of low power, who are of low greatness. And in Psalm 8, it, it, it like flips everything on its head and says, God is going to do something shocking through weakness and demonstrate his power through weakness to begin to show us that the Messiah is not going to be what we expect, what we think, what so many hoped for, this conquering king who would come in violence and destroy and subdue with power and violence, but instead through suffering. Now, now here is what is so incredible to me, is that son of man, this is Jesus's favorite way to refer to himself. There are a number of ways that people refer to Jesus. Lord of Lords, King of Kings, Master, Son of God, Creator of the cosmos, Sustainer of the universe, right? I mean, these are some pretty incredible things that are true about Jesus. And Jesus could have come onto the scene and said, here's your Creator. Here's your Sustainer. If I stopped thinking about you, you wouldn't exist. But that's not what he did. He chose to most often refer to himself as the son of man. Now, what is going on here? What, what does this mean? Well, in some ways, it means human. But in some ways, it comes from this person who is referred to in the Old Testament as the son of man. This is like a title. And it comes from Daniel, uh, Psalm 8 and Daniel seven thirteen. In Daniel 7, Daniel has this incredibly odd dream where the winds are swirling and these dark, scary chaos waters are here and these, these mutant, scary beasts come out of the dark, chaos waters. And they begin to just destroy the earth and trample underfoot all kind of people. And, and we find out that they represent these empires, these human empires that have begun to use the way of the enemy, the way of violence and destruction and power over to oppress people. And they just keep getting worse and worse and worse and worse. You got Babylon and then Persia and then Greece and then Rome. And then Daniel says, I saw some thrones and the ancient of days, or God, was seated on the throne. And then he invited someone else to come up and rule. And here's what it says. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. That God in this vision invites a human to come up and rule with him, to rule like God rules, to do the things that God does. And you're thinking, whoa, that's pretty incredible. And as the picture continues to be painted, it's this human 
that is divine, that is God himself. And as Jesus thinks about, how do I want people to see me? How do I want them to perceive me? He asked the question, who do you say that I am? And they give him kind of a ton of different answers. But who Jesus continues to say that he is, is the son of man. The one that became human, the God that became human. Not this great, awesome creator. He doesn't refer to himself as that, but instead he refers to himself as this humble human servant. And then he shows us often throughout his ministry, there are these opportunities for Jesus to bypass the difficult path in his temptation with the the devil. He tempts him to take the easy way and and become uh, become the, the ruler of all of these, you know, cities on the earth just by bowing and worshiping the devil. He's like, you don't have to suffer. You don't have to die. You don't have to be crucified. Just worship me right here and I'll give you all of this. And Jesus says, no way. I'm not going to take the path of least resistance. I'm not going to take the path that our culture says is glorious and great and mighty. I'm going to show you something completely and utterly different. And he descends. At one point, Peter, they're having a conversation and and he's talking to his disciples. And Jesus says that that he's going to suffer and die. And Peter takes him aside and rebukes him, which you got to give Peter some credit. That's bold, right? rebuking God. And it's a, that's a big deal. Peter's just called him the son of God, the Messiah. And then he rebukes him. And, and Jesus says, actually get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me because Peter doesn't want him to die. He doesn't want him to suffer. And Jesus says, that's the path I'm taking. And if you're getting in the way of that, you are becoming a stumbling block for me because I am going to Take the path of true greatness. I'm going to show you something different, something you've never seen from Caesar, something you never saw from Alexander the Great, something you never saw in Nebuchadnezzar. I'm going to show you what true greatness is, divine greatness. He's having a conversation uh, with uh, James and John. They come to him and say, hey, um, would you uh, do for us whatever I ask of you, Jesus? And I love that. So that's a great request. Just go to your boss one day and just be like, hey, can I just have from you whatever I'm about to ask from you? Be like, what are you going to ask? You know what I mean? Just, I love this. I love the way they ask it. And they say, what we want to be is seated on your right and your left in your glory. Now imagine what they're thinking when they think of his glory. I'm guessing they're thinking of a throne. They're thinking of, you know, this place of authority where you can, you know, not have to suffer. You have comfort. You have all that you need. People are underneath you. And they're thinking in your glory, right in your left. But Jesus' understanding was completely different. He begins to talk about his death. And he says, my right, my left's already been reserved for me. Those people sitting next to me. And what he begins to talk about is the cross. And the two thieves on either side. That when Jesus thought about his glory, his lifting up, it was on the cross. Jesus continued to self-identify as someone who was choosing to condescend or come down. And we see it continue to play out in this passage. It says, now, uh, will you go to the next one? Thank you so much. Now, I'll take a little drink, a little sympathy drink. 
Now in putting everything in subjection to him, to Jesus, he, God, left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Can I get an amen? Amen. I mean, we're in this unique time where Jesus has already risen to glory. He's already seated at the right hand of God. He's already everything and has control of everything. And yet there's a season, it's been a long season so far, where he's ruling and reigning, but we don't see it all happening yet. Where Jesus has already overcome the victory, but we haven't seen all the ripples of it transform everything yet. One day we will, but right now we don't. Right now there's still sickness and pain and hurt and betrayal, sadness, depression, anxiety, suffering. And one day all that will be done away with when Jesus returns. But the writer says, hey, I know y'all are suffering. I know you're experiencing persecution. Right Right now, we don't see everything as it one day will be. But it is in subjection under Jesus. It is. You might not feel it, but it is. And one day you'll experience it. It's going to be incredible. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. And we see this incredible picture of what greatness is, according to Jesus. In the way that he spoke, in the way that he lived, that Jesus, the word of God, the the one speaking creation into existence became human, a servant, suffered and died. And then he was resurrected resurrected, and he ascended and he was enthroned and glorified. That is what greatness is, men and women. No matter what our culture says, this is the path of greatness and only Jesus could walk it. This is what Philippians says. This is what Paul writes in Philippians about Jesus voluntarily setting aside his divine attributes, becoming a human, becoming a servant, becoming obedient to death, a torturous suffering death on a cross. And because of that, God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I tell you what, I've heard this so much, so often, that has lost its punch many times in my heart and my mind. But if you really think about it, who would do that? Why? What would compel someone who is great and powerful and awesome and comfortable and infinite to become finite? to become uncomfortable, to serve. I I was uh, binging The Chosen yesterday. um, And there was the the, the end of season two. uh, Spoiler alert. uh, He he dies at the end. Uh, End of season two, uh, you've got Mary and Joseph and they're about to have Jesus in this stable. 
And I was just overcome, just brought to tears by just thinking about like just the filth and the bacteria and the, just the nastiness that was in this place. And we've got these hospitals today that are just incredibly clean. We've got all these machines. We've got all these people that know what they're doing. And just think about the God of the universe being willing to be born into our filth. Not a God who is only above and superior and all powerful and all knowing, but a God who said, I'm gonna choose to limit myself and come down into your weakness, into your filth, and even on the cross, into your sin and take it on and carry it so that you won't have to. So that by the grace of God, Jesus might taste death for everyone. What would compel someone to do this? Love. That's what love truly is. It's someone saying, I'm going to sacrifice myself for the good of the other at great cost to me. And that's what Jesus did. And I tell you what, I'm just, I'm blown away that not only would Jesus do that, but he would continue to say, I'm the son of man. I'm the son of man. I'm the son of man. I'm like you. He became like me. He became like you and experienced our difficulty. I'm guessing there were times when Jesus was sick and covered in sweat, mucus, coughing. It's like, why, why would God do that? Why would he voluntarily do that? Because he loves you. Because he loves me. Because he knew that's what we needed. Because yeah, I need a God that's great and powerful and awesome and all-knowing and sovereign. I need that. But I also need a God who could condescend, who could come down and be with me in my muck and mire and take my sin, my rebellion upon himself and pay the penalty that I couldn't pay so that I can be with him in his life, in his glory, in his majesty, in Christ. God said, he's made us his children, co-heirs with Jesus because Jesus came down and said, this is greatness. This is greatness. Whew. Just let that sink in for a second. Whew. Wow. We're going to respond by taking communion. And communion is such an incredible picture of this. It's a great opportunity to remember what I so often forget, what my heart so often becomes hardened about, about God dying for me. Jesus was in a room with his disciples and he said, I'm about to do something different. They were taking the Passover and he said, I'm about to give new meaning to these elements. And he took the bread and he broke it. And he says, this is my body broken for you. I can only imagine as he's saying that, thinking about the rest of the evening, 
early into the morning and the next day his body actually being broken, being whipped 39 times till the flesh was ripped off of his back, a crown of thorns driven into his skull, his arms nailed to a cross, his feet nailed to a cross, hanging and suffocating to death, him breaking the bread and like just picturing his own body about to be broken. He says, this is what you get to do. Do this. When you come together, do this and remember me, what I did. And then he took the cup and he says, this is the cup of the new covenant. It's not the covenant that, that's like based on your actions and your obedience, but it's the new covenant based in my blood, my sacrifice, that we followers of Jesus get to drink of the new covenant, that Jesus paid it all. I paid nothing. It was free to me, but it cost him everything. He says, do this in remembrance of me. And here's what I'd like for us to do. We've got some communion stations all around the room. Uh, see if you can find the one closest to you. But, but what I want you to do in a second is, is to come up. And there are gonna be people who are gonna hand you um, a cracker, some unleavened bread. And then there's wine and juice and you can dip it in either the wine or the juice. It doesn't matter which one you dip it into. We also have a gluten-free option for you as well, if that's uh, something that you need. But we want to remember what Jesus did together. And I'm thinking about in the context of this passage, there are a couple places that we might be. You might be in here and you've never become a follower of Jesus. And maybe today for the first time, God is opening your heart. He's pulling you towards himself. Maybe you've seen the beauty of the God who came down and demonstrated true greatness by suffering and dying on your behalf. And you're thinking, I want in. I, wa I, I, I want that to be my God. I want to be a part of his family. If, that, if that's you, communion is a great first step. Say, yes, I'm going to remember your sacrifice and I'm going to embrace your death and identify myself with you as your daughter, as your son. Man, I invite you to come if that's you. Maybe you're just thinking about this and you're just overcome with gratitude, right? You're thinking about, right? The, David said, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Maybe that's what's happened this morning. And you in gratitude just want to thank God and take communion, man, do that. But maybe you're sitting in the, in the context of Hebrews and you're like the church. You've begun to neglect Jesus. You've begun to neglect this great salvation. You've begun to neglect his words and you're beginning to drift. Maybe what you need before you come up is to just take some time and just confess and just say, God, here's the reality of where I am. And, and, and just, you know, he's not gonna be shocked. He's gonna be like, what? I thought you were good because you're in church. I didn't hear you yelling at your kids in the car on the way here. That's you're fine. He knows, he already knows. And he loves you where you are. And he died for you when you were worse. And so just say, God, here's where I am. God, I, for some reason, my heart's hard. 
And I don't know why, but I hear about your death and it just, it's not stirring me right now like it did before. Just want to confess to you where I am. Maybe you've begun to live in sin and just, just say, God, here's where I am. And I, I've begun to live in lust. I've begun to live in greed. I've begun to live in gossip. I've begun to live in pride. Maybe you've begun to think of life about achieving greatness like the world says, and you've tried to become like those people. Maybe, maybe you've said, God, I, I, I'm trying to be great in these ways. And just, just say, God, here's where I am. I'm just confessing to you that I'm drifting. Help me. And I want you to know that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that God's throne for his children is not a throne of judgment, it's a throne of grace that we can confidently approach. And just begin to walk in that freedom as you walk up and take the, the cracker and dip it in the wine or the juice and remember the death of Jesus that paid it all. Even the stuff from last night, even the stuff from this morning, maybe even the stuff as you were listening to the message and judging me. Just kidding. I'm gonna pray for us. And then whenever you're ready, come up and take communion. And if this is not for you, feel free to just stay in your seat. No need to do this. No one knows. No one's looking around. We want to live authentically. And if, if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you don't want to remember his death and resurrection, that's okay. If you're not there yet, that's fine. But if you would like, if the Spirit's tugging on your heart and you want to remember, whenever you're ready, get up and take communion. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you so, 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 so much. This is who you are that this is what greatness is, a God who would condescend, who would come down, who would avail himself of access to just the ease of being divine and instead suffer and die for us. Thank you. Lord, I pray that you would restore to us the joy of our salvation that you would refix our eyes on Jesus, that you would bring us back from our drift, and that we would not neglect you. And I pray that as we take communion, as we remember you, that you would be magnified in our hearts and our minds, that you would stir us towards you. God, we need you, we need you, we need you, we need you. Thank you, Jesus, for dying and suffering on our behalf so that we might be set free and live life with you. God, I pray that if there's anyone here who doesn't know you and is wondering, Lord, I just pray that you draw their hearts near to you right now, right now, God. I pray that you would awaken hearts and minds right now. Pray that people would be willing to say, I want in. I will align myself with Jesus as my Lord and Savior. God, I pray for people who, who are in the middle of drift right now, Right now, God, that you would just open their heart and mind right now, Lord. Draw us back to you. Lord, there are people whose hearts have grown hard. Lord, I pray that you would soften them as you promised you would give a heart of flesh. Right now, God, in this moment, right now, Lord. God, we need you. Meet us where we are. 
Draw us to yourself for your glory, your honor, and your praise. It's in the name of Jesus that we lift up. Amen.